0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Ways of Working podcast. I am your host, Adam Thackeray, and today I am joined on the podcast by Richard Blundell. So Richard has over 35 years of senior executive management and consulting experience in the global environmental services and technology sectors. His experience includes operations management, corporate and market development, mergers and acquisitions, new business initiation, and consulting. Richard's international experience spans running businesses in Eastern and West Europe, North and South America, Africa, and Asia, including 12 countries from India to China. He has significant experience in business creation and management of growth-stage businesses in global markets. He has completed over $500 million in combined corporate M&A transactions and private equity funding for early-stage companies. From 1989 to 2004, Richard held senior leadership and executive positions with Laidlaw Inc., Canada's largest waste management company, as well as SGSSA, a global company in the inspection, testing, and certification services as the SVP of Global Environmental Services. And lastly, at Hagemeyer, Casa Lieberman, a technology marketing company, was in Asia-Pacific. He served as the executive vice president of the technology division. During this period and since 2004, Mr. Blundell has held founder and or executive management positions in 10 early-stage clean tech companies, including a number of board of director appointments. Richard joined the Mars Discovery District here in Canada in 2018 to lead the development of applied innovation networks for global corporate partners. In 2019, he was appointed managing director of the Clean Tech Venture Services Group. And then in June 2020, he joined Pantanonium Inc. as the head of strategy. Pantonium's on-demand digital infrastructure solution enables cities to dramatically improve public bus transit access, and productivity within their communities as a means to drive enhanced social and economic prosperity. Richard is an executive in residence and associate professor for the teaching stream at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He joined the faculty in 2016 where he teaches MBA and executive MBA courses in sustainability, innovation, and entrepreneurship. He is also an advisor to the Prince of Wales Accounting for Sustainability Charity. Richard holds a Bachelor of Science from the University of Toronto and an MBA from IMD Lausanne. I am extremely delighted to be joined by Richard today. Obviously, and evident from his background, he has a tremendous amount of experience, wisdom and insights into sustainability, entrepreneurship and growing and scaling organizations. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Richard Blundell. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Ways of Working podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Blundell. Richard, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, been very excited to you know get you on the show and, and talk to you because uh, you know sustainability has become a, a hot topic again, and, and I think it's been there for a while, but it seems to be getting more and more attention. You're even seeing like traditional investment firms like BlackRock and others that are now looking to even adjust their portfolios, where if you're not a sustainable company or looking towards it, then they're actually going to remove you from their their portfolio options. Um, And they're actually starting to do that already. Um, The term sustainability also becomes a little fuzzy, gets a little overused at times as well. You know, what does sustainability mean to you? And, you know, how do you see the business world shifting to be truly more sustainable now?
1: Uh, So, good question. And and my views changed, actually, during the pandemic, which is really interesting. So, I used to think that sustainability was all about uh, sustained long-term resource efficiency uh, that delivers enhanced social, environmental, and uh, economic outcomes. And some people would add governance to that as well. Um, And one of the things that we've seen during the pandemic is this... um, concentration of global supply chains around purely economic efficiency. Mm. And so you saw this with the electronics industry. We've seen it with fashion in, in you know, because that's now concentration traded in, in, in Bangladesh and Vietnam, essentially, and, you know, other parts of Asia. Yeah. But there's no, you know, uh, uh, garment industry at all in North America where it was a very important part of the economy many, you know, a long time ago. So one of the things that we've discovered is that, uh, these supply chains are not resilient. Mm. And so resiliency is a very important part of, of of sustainability. So now I've sort of changed that definition to encompass resiliency. So it's resource efficiency and resiliency that delivers the social environmental governance, if you like, and economic outcomes. Economic outcomes are really important in this definition because one of the things that you see with business models that fail around sustainability is they're trying to drive purely sustainable or sustainability outcomes. Yep. Uh, and they're grounded in sustainability only objectives. And I think what you need to do to be successful today is you need to have economic objectives that deliver sustainability outcomes. Do
0: you have an example of what, you know, that might look like? What is one of those specific economic outcomes? So we did some work, um, along, you know, what, a way back
1: uh, with a um, uh, a company that was building um, EV charging stations. And okay. so it was very interesting because it was all about free charging, you know, and it was all grounded in sustainability objectives as a business model and the outcomes were expected to be, sort of, uh, you know, get a free charge and do good for the earth and all the rest of it. And um, and the reality was there, I mean, there were a couple of realities. One was that the there wasn't enough inventory in the market in terms of EVs to actually scale that business. But the bigger issue was that there, because there wasn't any economic outcomes being delivered by that business model, it wasn't sustainable. Ah, I see. And so what we did was we went back and taught and, and they reinvented the business model and they created, instead of sort of a very bland... Sort of piece of hardware. Uh, what they did was they cre- they put an LED screen on the front and the back of it, made yep. it look really great. Put it on 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 four courts of, of you know major aggregation commercial aggregation points, shopping malls, uh, you know 7-Elevens, all that sort of stuff. Yep, and they sold advertising on the LED screens as a source of income to be able to provide a free charge. So let me, let me, you know, my, now my memory is was a while ago. The original business model, sorry, was to charge for uh, using those stations, those charging stations. And that was going to be the economics, right? But it was all built around a sustainability set of objectives and not a set of economic. And so they were, when they rethought this and they they, they created a really a, a strong set of, of economic objectives around uh, an advertising business model, they were able to give away the charging. That's right. That's now I remember.
0: I think that's very interesting because it's almost like that's where, to your point, people have missed out, like trying to build sustainable businesses or even, you know, a nonprofit like charity organization or, or volunteer organization that's trying to really drive change. They miss out on that economic side of it and then they don't have a way to to build up because you do need money to do all of it and, to your point, keep it sustainable.
1: Yeah, so business, I mean, business is business at the end of the day. I mean, the reality is that we still have to be able to generate an economic outcome, to, or, sorry, a set of economic outcomes to be able to do the other stuff. And so you mentioned BlackRock at the outset. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a real, there's a rise now in activist uh, investors like BlackRock who are really setting the tone by saying, and, you know, what they basically, what um, what the CEO basically said a couple of years ago or three years ago now, I mm-hmm. think, was if you're not providing a benefit to society, uh, we're not going to invest in you. Yeah. And now he's actually incorporated the environment and environmental uh, stewardship. And, and why is that important? And I thought the way that, you know, uh, he got to that logic was really interesting. So he basically said when a 30-year mortgage, which is basically the one financial instrument that underpins our entire financial system, mm-hmm. when we're unable to actually quantify the risk associated with that asset or that resource, um, you know, that becomes, that that which underpins our, sy- our financial system, yep. that, that sort of breaks down the entire system. And so I thought his logic around, you know, that very key sort of financial uh, instrument or, or 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 mechanism that underpins the system, mm. when we can't actually understand with any confidence how to price that from a risk standpoint, yep. the whole thing falls apart. So now he's basically said uh, to everybody that if you don't have a climate plan, uh, we're not going to invest in you. So I think it's interesting that mm-hmm. you've got a group of 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 institutional investors, and now also, um, you know, high net worth individuals that are all jumping on the bandwagon and saying, you know, these are the kind of requirements that you need to have for us to even consider investing in your business.
0: I think that is very interesting how he goes back to that core instrument too, right? That indicator, because that- that's a very clear one that every market can hit on and everyone is, ba- everyone has a basis for.
1: And everyone understands it, right? Yeah. Everyone understands that what a 30-year mortgage is, right? Yes, and, yes. And they understand how important that is to underpinning our entire financial system, including mm-hmm. our public markets, right? So yep. I think um, what BlackRock has done in and the way they've done it, which is the logic that um, um, that that they've explained to the CEOs of the companies that they've invested in yep. makes a tremendous a tremendous amount of sense as as he did when he started talking about social impact, and I think that's that's got a lot of people thinking about what what am I doing with my business? You know, what are why are these things important? It's one thing to sort of say, you know, we're going to set some metrics for you, uh, and not explain why. Right. And it's another thing to say we're going to ask you. To perform or to behave in a certain manner, to provide certain sort of stewardship to these very important, um, you know, envir- well, these very important uh, outcomes that we're trying to uh, deliver, uh, so that people actually understand why uh, that's important. Because I think what we don't do well, in, you know, in society, is we don't explain why these things are important. We don't try to create a dialogue and i think what they've done at black blackrock is they've done that very well. they've really created a dialogue
0: and, and this is the the five why's piece like why why do people try to skip out on the why like you hear in entrepreneurship you want to go why what how because if you understand the purpose it drives everything else why do you why do people continuously skip over that piece is it they're just trying to move so fast they don't they can't explain it what what do you think is the reason for that
1: i i think you know they to a certain degree i think um, there's a bit of fatigue too. Mm. I mean, it, you know, this has been the climate debate has been around for a long time. I think the one of the one of the real problems with the whole climate debate is they've been selling death insurance for far too long, right? Because it's all the doom and gloom stories, and the yeah. reality is the life insurance side of that discussion is actually very exciting. I mean, you're you know, if you look at the SDGs, the UN uh, yep. Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, If you actually are to address all 17 of those over the next decade, it's something like a 30 to 40 trillion dollar opportunity for the world and for, you know, uh, anyone who wants to participate in that marketplace. So that's the that's the story that is now starting to be told. And I think before we didn't go to the why because it was so it was such a doom and gloom story. Right. Mm. It's sort of shut dry you know the case (laughs) shut and dry case right yeah
0: Yeah. everything's going to explode at some point the world's falling apart
1: you know we need to do something now and 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 there's this kind of sense of urgency without you know really going into why we need to do these things and asking people to sort of create dialogues around this and I think what BlackRock has done is they've actually created a dialogue yeah um And I think that's the role of investors too, and that particularly the activist investors is to actually, you know, create a forum for actually having these discussions.
0: Yeah, I think that's smart. So does that go back to the community piece then too? They're essentially building somewhat of a a community to have that open dialogue, and by being obviously significantly significant influencers in the space, it it allows people to flock to that community then. Yeah, I, I you know I think the whole
1: kind of investment space anyways about ecosystems. And, you know, when you think about climate and when you think about social impact, these touch upon a bunch of things. Uh, They're not isolated in an ecosystem. So to be able to solve them, because these problems are so, or these challenges are so large, you know, no single company can really solve these on their own. And there's now a need more than ever for public and private sector ecosystems to come together to actually design and deliver these solutions, nobody can do it by themselves. And you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, we would look to the big conglomerates, the big multinational yeah. uh, companies, to actually come in and save us. On and the problem is most of them have actually been uh, contributed to the problem. But those, 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 that sort of that hypothesis doesn't. Stand anymore. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't hold water.
0: It needs more holistic involvement.
1: You need to build ecosystems. I don't. Yeah. I. I think the reality is that there's that there are a number of different players uh, uh, that actually can contribute to delivering solutions that will help us curb both the climate issue or the climate crisis and address some of the social inequities which we've really seen being exacerbated during COVID and with Black Lives Matter and George, George Floyd, Floyd, et cetera. So um, those are very important issues. And, um, and they need to be solved by building communities, by doing it together. We, mm. we can't solve these by in, in isolation. They need to be done by, by drawing all of the actors, all of the stakeholders into the discussion and then building from there to actually create solution ecosystems.
0: You're also a professor at University of Toronto. What what sort of guidance, uh, and you're also an entrepreneur in residence, what sort of guidance or, or, you know, instruction are you providing to students who are looking to build a company or looking to enter the business world in this new, you know, paradigm that we're in, in order for them to be successful?
1: Well, I mean, so a couple of things. So I, so I think that we're in an unprecedented time of opportunity. So, I don't think there's a better time than right now to actually be an entrepreneur. And why do I say that? Because the pace of change that's being delivered through fourth industrial revolution technologies, IoT, AI, AR, all those uh, uh, data analytics, et cetera, Mm -hmm. advanced data analytics, um, where Canada actually happens to be a leader, particularly the Toronto to Waterloo corridor is Mm -hmm. one of the top three uh, sort of research uh, regions in the world when it comes to these these new technologies. When we when the line of exponential growth in these technologies crossed our ability as humanity to actually uh, keep up. Yep. Um. The, the so and that is the difference, You know. The, so that that exponential curve, which is increasing year after year, and our ability to actually sort of adapt, if you like. The distance is becoming greater and greater, yes. and and the the area behind that curve actually is the opportunity, and it's an enormous opportunity. So my advice is that you know you you need if you're going to do something, you need to do something that you're really passionate ra- about, mm-hmm. because it's extremely hard to build a company from scratch. The other thing is that you you absolutely need to be. Um, you need to be doing something that has purpose associated with it. All the great entrepreneurs of the world, Musk, others, yeah. do, are not in it for the money. So so this notion that, you know, you're, you're building a business so you can retire on Mojito Island and, you know, drink <laughs> alcoholic beverages with little umbrellas for the rest of your life do, and put your feet up, is just total foul. It's just yeah. ridiculous, right? Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> and the reality is that all of these people are actually doing something that are, that is driven by purpose. And then the other things I say to them is that if you're going to be successful, you have to be um, able to be very focused. Uh, So you don't, you know, so, you know, none of the world's greatest restaurants are buffets for a reason, (laughs) right? So you don't want to build a buffet. You (laughs) have to resist the temptation to do everything that your customers want. You have to pick what you really want to do and stick with it and just do that. Do one thing really well. I think timing is extremely important, so that's your ability to read the tailwinds and the headwinds in a marketplace. This is a particularly interesting marketplace because unlike Mm 2008-9, where I had a global failure of one sector, this is a global failure of all sectors because of the pandemic. So the stimulus spendings, which are the tailwinds coming out of this, um, are going to build new businesses, new build, new businesses, sorry, will be, be built on the back of those tailwinds. So your ability to actually understand those and, and to build towards, uh, those opportunities are really, really important. And, um, and I think at the end, of, and then the, the last thing is that, you know, you need to build, um, you need to have a great team and you need to build ideas that are big enough, um, that you can pivot multiple times without, changing the idea, in, in, in you know, in, in its entirety.
0: That's an interesting piece when you say pivot, because I, I think that people go in looking, <clears throat> I have this, you know, grand vision and I'm going to get it and I'm going to implement that and I'm going to roll with it. But to your point, you mentioned pivot and that you might have multiple pivots, um, the ability to go through that mud and, and go through, you know, go through that, I think is a very interesting point because um, you're, you could change significantly as you evolve that company.
1: Yeah, I think so. One of the things that we talk a lot about in, um, you know, at the business school is um, this notion of developing empathy for customers, which is really a business design technique. And and the notion, business design basically says, if you're going to reinvent something yeah, um, or reimagine something, uh, you know, the past one would help you. And so it's a little bit sort of what Eric Reese wrote about when he talked about the lean startup and Steve Blank and, you know, why the, why the lean startup changes everything. Those are really, if there's great reads out there for people who want to, the lean startup. Yeah, that's a really good. It uh, is. I've I've read it as well. It's It's a great book. And so what that's based on is the notion that your business model doesn't survive uh, each interview, each interaction with a customer. So that's the notion of a pivot. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a little exaggerated. I mean, you're not pivoting after every discussion, but. But what you're doing is you're building a business on the back of the stakeholders and their needs. And one of the other tools that I get people to use are the business model canvas and the, and, the, and, the biz, and the value proposition canvas. Most businesses don't know how to build a value proposition. Most businesses don't understand how to build a good customer experience. And one thing that's changed dramatically in my lifetime, and it's happened recently, is that customer experience now is valued more than price. Right. So so that is all grounded in a value proposition. So you really need to understand your customers. And you have, and most people also don't understand this, most business models have multiple customers. So it's their ability to understand how is the, what does the value chain look like? What are the stakeholder needs within those value chains? Who are the customers? What are the problems that you're solving for? So what are the really big problems that you're solving for, and what are the incredible benefits that you're delivering through a unique customer experience to solve that. And so those are really important attributes to actually building a business, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. The other thing is that I don't think innovation, a lot of people think that innovation is all about digging deep inside a company to understand what you're really, really good at, and then building from there. So it's innovation from the outside in. I don't believe that at all. I think it's innovation from the uh, sorry from it's innovation from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I think what it's all about is from the outside in. It's your and Andy Grove coined, coined this really great term which is snow melts at the edges, which is a metaphor for the fact that change happens on the on the exteriors of a business yes. where your customers are those interfaces. Change happens in the value chain. What others are doing to actually rethink the value chain to disrupt it, and if you think about all of the most famous business models that we know—Uber, Airbnb, um, you know, Amazon—all those guys, they've actually gone in and taken. Value chains, farm to table, that's an even yes. better one, right? Yeah. Completely disrupted, disintermediated huge parts of the value chain mm. by innovating from the outside in. And so the other thing I teach students is you've got to learn how to actually look at what others are doing, not just in your space, but in other spaces that have relevant business model features that are doing it better than you. And so you're able to go into those, look at those companies, look at what they're doing, and take some of that back. And, you know, you need, need you need to learn to steal with pride a little bit, right? <laughs> because you can't patent a business model. So no. you can steal a business model sure. easily, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think the, and so if we take this all the way back to sustainability. My real belief today around climate and social impact is that, we have all of the technology today, it exists to actually curb climate change, to yeah. actually make a, a very large impact on social enterprises and social innovation. And it's really not the technology that we need, because if you think about breakthrough technology... On average, that takes 20 years to get from the lab to deployment at scale. Yes. If you believe the climate scientists and they say we've got less than 20 years to actually make that difference, we have to work with what we have now. So that all leads to business model innovation. So the real key here is your ability to actually take what exists and to act, build ecosystems, novel, mm-hmm. unique ecosystems. To understand customers really, really well and build experiences that are engaging and sticky, and to and that's done a lot of that's done through building communities. Yep. By the way, yeah, and then deliver a, a unique business model and in a, a, a business model that has disrupted a value chain, uh, or that is even looking for uh, white space opportunities. But it's not going to come, I don't believe, from only technology. It's going to come from our ability to actually reinvent, and to innovate around business model designs.
0: I think that's important because it's a it's a it's that holistic or that system level view that you're looking at because you need that, as you said, across the board because that will allow you to see that um, ability to disrupt that entire model because otherwise you're looking too much down one silo and you can't see everything to appreciate. The farm to table is an example where Holistically, everything from the outside all the way in is entirely disrupted and changed. Yeah. So, so I think that's a, a big piece.
1: I, I mean, I I, I I had the very good fortune of working for a gentleman called, um, named uh, Sergio Marchionne, who is the CEO of Fiat and Chrysler. But I worked with him uh, earlier before. Yeah. He, I worked with him right up until he got to Fiat and Chrysler. Um, and And there were a couple of very valuable lessons that I learned from him. One was this notion that you, as a leader, you need to focus on um, you know, looking for discontinuities in your business model. Um, and, and really uh, doing that as a way of life. So that's like a day-to-day pursuit. You know, It's the ability to think about how can we break what we've got and make it better? And, the, and I think one of the only ways to do that is to actually learn from others. Yep. So we spent a lot of time Outside of our business, talking to other companies, other industries that we thought were doing things really well, and that were actually disrupting their um, uh, their industries. And the other thing is that, and so to, the other thing is that, if you're managing your business through the cells of a spreadsheet, it gets back to Andy Grove, right? You're in the middle of the snowbank. How are you ever <laughs> going to see change, right? And so we didn't. And that's the other thing I tell students, and probably to my detriment to some of the people in the strategy department, but <laughs> this notion of building detailed strategic plans is, is nonsense. Yes. Like, how can you, it's like the, you know, like the Russians when they did these five-year plans for, you know, their state economies, like it's pure <laughs> fantasy, right? It's just like, okay, let's throw a dart at a board. Yeah. Um, and so what what I learned from Sergio is that, you know, you need to do things. We built plans that were directional. Uh, so that we weren't myopically looking at uh, spreadsheets. So spread, spreadsheet economics really has failed us over the years, yes, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and so, if you're doing that today, I would urge you to stop doing it. You know,
0: pa- consultants got paid very well for it, but that's oh, I'm I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure they have.
1: <laughs> but I mean, he was a, he was truly one of the best leaders I've ever worked with in my lifetime. He that's was amazing. unbelievable. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, with that, like you're seeing that that shift and you mentioned that multidisciplinary thinking, which I think is there's not enough people that are doing that right now that, you know, people sometimes coin them as generalists or polymaths or just, you know, in in those certain certain labels. But uh, I think it is important to, to look across those different, you know, models for working. Are you seeing similar or, you know, more helpful patterns than others in other industries? Like, are you looking to you know biology or chemistry or history or sports teams or like are you seeing any specific area where it's been more beneficial to you know companies or or is it just unique cases where you've investigated and then found it
1: I think you know I mean I so there isn't one area that I I think there's been a there's a tremendous amount of innovation happening right now given yep. the pandemic and 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 the way that we work and live has changed forever right so mm-hmm. you know the reality is that the young people today, particularly the millennials and Gen Z or Gen Z, mm-hmm. are very, I think, concerned about their ability to survive and and perform well and and build out really good careers in this kind of fourth industrial revolution economy. This exponential yeah. that, that is growing at an exponential pace. And so, the notion of continuous learning is going to be very important uh, for companies. Um, they're going to be sort of continuous learning organization. This notion, I think the one of the things that's going to be very important is diversity. You know, innovation only happens when there's enough diversity in the room for it to happen, which means that the ecosystems and the people that are a part of those ecosystems need to represent that diversity, that inclusiveness. Yeah. I also think it's going to be very important for companies to focus on personal growth of people rather than professional growth. So it it it's not about growing good business. People, it's about growing good human beings, right? And this notion of focusing on, you know, delivering a better future uh, is going to be very important moving forward. But I think, and I'm not answering your question, but I think what what the question you've asked is, you know, are you, am I seeing sort of these unusual kind of relationships? And yes. I think yes. yes, we're seeing more, okay, and more of them where you're seeing, and I think. There was one at when I was at Mars that was really fascinating because it was a, um, it is now a it is a genomic therapeutics company that was built by you know, somebody that was you know really good at data analytics and then brought in the biology and all of the other components that were necessary and they came from different industries. Interesting. And they met in that ecosystem because they were living in it. Right. And they you know sort of had these collisions if you like and. Created a really cool company, but I I think the future is going to be creating more and more of these atypical sort of partnerships to actually solve really we call them big hairy challenges. (laughs) Big hairy challenges are typically challenges that can't be solved by a single company, so they require an ecosystem. So as we got you know I said earlier, but I think these ecosystems are becoming more diverse.
0: And I think that's interesting because with the, with ways of working, shifting, not only just like how people operate within companies, but obviously with COVID people are working remote or in, you know, mobile locations, work anywhere type deal. I think that presents an interesting opportunity for remote areas to become those ecosystems.
1: Yeah. I mean, so you take geography out of the equation, right? The only thing you have now are time zones, right? That's the only thing left. So, I mean, absolutely. I think you knock down all the barriers and then you add 5G, yes that equation and 5g is really interesting why because 5g takes the latency out of the networks that we used to have it'll be more widespread faster all the rest of it it'll allow for larger swaths of the world to actually participate in the digital economy yes and the interesting thing is that it'll become more competitive right because that latency means that the guys who have carved out A competitive space just built on latency no longer will be competitive and it'll allow for, you know, somebody sitting in the middle of nowhere in Kenya to actually, actually, you know, participate in that marketplace where they were unable to do that before. And as the costs are driven down for the devices, the personal devices that are, uh, uh, you know, people use to actually participate in this economy and all of the connectivity around the devices that are delivering the data, so mostly sensors, right? Yes. Uh, as those costs continue to be driven down, uh, it it makes it means for a larger, more inclusive. Uh, digital, global digital economy. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think it's Mm. going to be really exciting because geography is no longer an issue.
0: Yeah, I think that's really neat because there has been like back to the SDG goals you mentioned before, they're they're trying to do all this work by 2030. And a lot of it is dependent on availability of stuff. And because there is so much that is available online, the only way to do that is to make it frictionless for those populations that don't have access to it now to have access to it. Yeah. So I think 5G does that. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah just getting all the towers there. Because it was like before I was trying to get fiber or satellite or radio towers and it, they just didn't have that technology up until now. And now they do. And I think it's pretty neat that that'll be my, built the
1: on, My only concern is that to fuel that growth, that means that we need to build a lot of data centers. Data centers are huge energy hogs. They are, yeah. And I'm very concerned because they talk about the industry talks about it being uh, and these are their terms a hundred percent more energy efficient efficient in its operation so the 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 operation of the network itself like the 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 the, the digital pipes and all that sort yep. of stuff are, are much more efficient but the problem is that the data analytics the cloud infrastructure on the back end of that is not going to be energy efficient at all it's going to cost an enormous amount. And when you look at the, at the cost, and I can't remember what they were, but they were, it was sort of three quarters data centers, one quarter the rest right, to make it happen. And so those data centers need to be thought through and not only how they're built and what technologies are being used to build those, but where they're being built, because there are some geographic advantages to putting this in places like Canada, yes, where we have hydro, yeah, where we have, you know, um, sort of cheaper, more sustainable um, sources of energy, renewable sources of energy, and places like Iceland where you've got geothermal, et cetera. So I think there's some, and it's going to present some opportunities to some parts of the world too, but Reality is we have to be very careful about how we build out that cloud infrastructure.
0: Yeah, and that and blockchain, right? Consume a lot. It's a big problem, and it because of the the footprint that the carbon footprint that they do push out. I think I'm I'm going to be optimistic and hope that the Googles and others of the world that are producing these data centers, they've they said they've committed to net zero. Um, Obviously, the devil's always in the details of that, but I'm I'm hopeful that they will start to do that as part of this push towards more sustainability within those organizations, right?
1: Well, Google. I mean, so we we many 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 years ago, I started a a, um, a sustainability network, a business sustain so with, and we had twelve large, very large companies. Apple was one of them that yep. was a member, and they were non-competitive category leaders, and um, and so we looked at that issue, because um, our our mandate was really to to bring together. Sort of global category leaders in different industries, and and by the by the virtue by by virtue that they weren't competitive, it meant that they uh, would open up and talk. Once we had right. competitors in the room, conversations yeah. were stilted immediately. Um, Lawyer
0: showed up. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> but it worked out. It was really interesting. So we did a lot of projects, and and one of the things that we did was we helped these organizations reach into the startup world to find new technologies, new business model innovations that they could deploy themselves at scale because that's the great thing about being a large company. I mean, small, I mean, startups are good at technology, are yes. good at innovation, technology innovation. Uh, large companies are good at scaling. That's what they're really good at. They're terrible at, at innovation. And so when you can marry the two, and it's a very difficult thing to do because they talk a different language. Yes. They have different objectives. You know, it's hard to pair a small, um, you know, sort of, uh, in this case, it was a hydrogen reformation technology for a data center that uh, Apple was building in North Carolina, uh, and they're very focused on their business and growing it and everything else, and Apple's very focused on their data center, and and those are divergent objectives to a certain yes. degree, right? Because yep. you're asking them to draw take away from uh, their time of building their company to actually focus on a project, but it worked out in the end, and they actually built a data center that combined solar and and, uh, hydrogen reformation technologies to actually make it 100% renewable. So it's that kind of leadership that you look for. And you expect from the world's largest companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and others. You expect that type of leadership. And I think we're seeing that they're being challenged today on the social side of that those social issues where they haven't been leaders at all. No, they haven't. And they're learning now that they can't get away with not being a leader because of, by virtue of the fact that they are such massive organizations and impact so much of our lives today. And, um, But they've been doing some pretty good work on the environmental side. There's a long way to go. but But, you know, I would prefer to look at this optimistically than... I, I'm kind of life insurance rather than death, death insurance.
0: I think it's a better perspective, right? It's like something you get to do, not something you have to do. And I, I forget where I read that, but it was, it, it is a massive perspective change if you look at, oh, I have to do this because of doom and gloom, whereas I get to do this because of the opportunity. And I think that that perspective shift is significant. That's why regulations never really
1: worked, right? Because right. Re- regulations carrot and stick, right? So. So what happens when you create regulatory constraints people find ways to get around of them right and yeah. either they find ways to get around them in their the jurisdictions that they're operating in or what we saw a lot of was we will leave those tough you know reg- those tough regulatory jurisdictions and go and pollute somewhere else right sure. so we've learned that that doesn't work
0: no, yeah, yeah, they always they always find a workaround, it, which yeah. is disappointing because that just shows the true nature of those individuals that yeah. are that are running those corporations. Completely irresponsible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so you mentioned geography and that it's being removed, like the removal of geography and limitations. Um, you know, we obviously both live in the Georgian Bay region, and um, but prior to this, you've you've lived all over the lived and worked all over the world for some very prominent organizations and some you know notable cities. Uh, what have you learned or seen in those cities or or in your travels and work? that you think could be applied to this region um, as it's starting to grow? There's, there's growth mandates here. There's a lot that's happening. There's, you know, a lot of, I would say chaos, if you will, with figuring out development versus the environment. Um, What can we learn and adopt here or look to for guidance uh, in in how, you know, this region approaches its growth and and sustainability, uh, sustainability strategies?
1: Yeah. So good question. So I, so the one thing about cities or towns, uh, are that they are inherently competitive organisms, organisms just like a company and they compete for you and me, Mm -hmm. jobs, tourism. Um, and they do that by, uh, they really compete on quality of life, right? At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. What does that mean? Quality of life means a lot of things, but, it means the quality of the infrastructure, education, healthcare, transportation, uh, all that sort of stuff, right, that matters. Um, and it also means, you know, creating uh, prosperous communities. That's the, you know, that's super important. The social, you know, you want the social aspect, which means that you want to ensure that everybody has the opportunity to lead a productive life, mm-hmm. right? And so... And, and if you can create communities that have very good levels of quality of life, then you're going to be successful. So all you have to do is just look at what some of the, I mean, I think it's The Economist that does this or is it the, the the World Economic Forum? I can't remember that. Yeah. Rates, you know, what are the most...
0: Oh, the, the top cities or whatever to live in the world? I mean, yeah. you, you
1: know, they sort of be... The, there's the same ones over and over again, yes. right? And it's, you know,
0: Scandinavia, Singapore... Yeah, the, the Luxembourg's and Austrias and... And yeah. that the ones... And that the, re,
1: the reality is because they've created diverse, inclusive societies. Mm-hmm. They've got really good infrastructure. They have built their their their... Uh, their their communities around the the natural wealth that they have, and they have not overexploited it. Right, you know, and so there's this balance that we need to actually achieve of ensuring. And what worries me about Collingwood is that we there's a real danger we're going to lose our lose our diversity here. Yeah, because you know there's a lot of people moving here. That are very wealthy, obviously, and it's pushing out, pushing up housing costs, housing prices, and it's pushing out, you know, a portion of the population that has lived here for decades and yep. generations, um, which I think is a very bad thing. And I think there needs to be a balance struck here to maintain the di- diversity. And that's, if you go to Scandinavia, I spent a lot of time, I was on the board of a couple of companies in Norway over okay. over m- during the course of my lifetime, and and acquired a business in Norway, uh, in for a larger company um, as a part of an M and A exercise, and got to experience a lot, and I spent a lot of time in Denmark, Sweden, uh, yeah. and in Norway, and those are such balanced societies. Now, one could argue that they're they're very homogenous in terms of they're not really that diverse. That's starting to change, and they've recognized that they need that diversity to change. Um, and to, be, uh, to build better communities, more resilient communities. But I think in our case, in, in Collingwood's case, the natural environment is a very big part of the quality of life here. Yes. And my concern is that there is rampant, uncontrolled development here, that is going to destroy the natural environment, which is a very, very important, you know, element in our quality of life here. And they really, and I'm glad to see that they've put a stop to this yep. uncontrolled, rampant development until they sort it out and they've used water as an excuse, well, not an excuse, it's a real issue, yes. you know, and it, and they've made, a, I think, a bold decision. Uh, and that's the other thing that these, you know, you you would hope that the community leaders are, are able to, uh to make these bold decisions and to you know fight back right yeah. a- against uh some of these economic interests that don't necessarily have our best quality of life interests
0: yeah and uh, i think that's a problem is it's not they they are very one dimensional in their yeah. thinking and that's that's unfortunate right it's fine if the development's going to continue at at a pace but is there consideration for the infrastructure is there consideration for the environment is there consideration for Schools, parks, what, you know, all these pieces, like you see the developments going in and there's not a lick of green space in them. And yeah. that's, that's a problem, right? And that's a very, a very simple use case. If you look at others, it, it gets, uh, you know, wildly out of control.
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll I, I tell you a good story. So I got, I um, wasn't a very successful uh, student and uh, they asked me to leave after my first year of university. So I started a company uh, with some people, with some partners in the UK, and we were trying to figure out where we were, we were building uh, equipment for the, um, for the oil industry initially, but it was for the maintenance of uh, refineries. And that then morphed into actually um, providing city uh, municipal uh, services uh, around, uh, uh, sort of around environmental services, uh, cleaning sewers and stuff like that. Anyway, we 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 were looking for a for a place to establish our company our plant um, yeah. and we needed to be in a place that um, we could afford we needed to be in a place that had um, uh, ca- you know like captive uh, uh, um, employees like and skilled employees in this case and the, the funny thing the interesting thing is we ended up in a small little town in the middle of nowhere in Wales. why? because they offered us a great economic deal, Right, they, they gave us access to a, a facility for nothing provided that we had a certain number of people employed per month. And it was in an area where three coal mines had closed. It was like 60% unemployment, but the skills were there. Right. So we needed an ecosystem. And it wasn't about coming, you know, we couldn't afford to do it here. It was far too expensive in Toronto. I mean here, Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and we couldn't afford to do it in any other large cities because we were a small startup, et cetera. And so the the thing that you need to sort of think about is what are the right ingredients that an ecosystem needs to have, a town, a city needs to have, to actually uh, attract the kinds of, of of commerce and industry that are underlying kind of foundations to... Ah, uh, the tax base and and uh, of a town and, and and to the 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 employment opportunities of a of a town as well. And I would argue that uh, Collingwood has is uniquely placed to be just that. For you know, we've been talking yep. around wellness in yep. particular, yep. Uh, because it just seems to be this notion of 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 combining. you know, access to nature and, uh, you know, treatments and, uh, and therapy around mental illness, et cetera, and, and wellness in general is a very powerful opportunity. And, and so you need to actually make sure that there's an ecosystem here that can support that. That means that we need to have experienced people coming out of the educational system that can actually be a part of growing those industries. You can't sort of asked them to come from, the, you know, from all over the place. You, you need to have a focus, a center. In my case in Wales, because these people that we hired were all coming out of the coal mines, they were really good mechanical. Uh, you know, they had very good mechanical skills. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what we needed. We were manufacturing equipment, and we needed people who were essentially really good mechanics. Yes. And, uh, and so they, they built from their strengths to sell us on coming there and we were the biggest employer after about two years, right? So, amazing. Yeah, and I think part of that economic revival for that little small town was th- this little nowhere company that showed up and initially employed 25 people a month, and that grew and grew. And then when we outgrew their infrastructure, their capability to actually service the more sophisticated needs we we had as a company, but also as a community. Right We actually then moved, but not far right. We moved, but when we brought most of the uh, workers with us, um, anyway, it, it's a good it's a good little kind of um, segue around you know yeah what, absolutely how towns you know compete for uh, for building these 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 unique economic and 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 commercial sort of ecosystems.
0: And, and you know, transportation, so you you're ahead of strategy at, at Pan Pantano, and Pantonium, uh, sorry apologies. Yeah, that's okay. Um, what what's happening there because it's a, a significant change in the yeah. way transportation is yeah. done. and I almost see that there could be benefit to something like that here in this region as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, so Pantonium is a really cool company and its timing is perfect. So one of the and I would say the most important thing for startups. By far, the most important key to success is timing, mm-hmm. and this timing is absolutely perfect and what Pantonium is doing is it's solving for unproductive or underperforming bus routes, right so we've you and i we've all been on buses on yep. weekdays and evenings, sorry, or weekends yep. where they're half empty, yeah, right up here, you just have to look at the buses they're almost always well, empty they're always empty that's covid related too, but anyway, yes. and so what's happened is that you know or what we're trying to do is we're sort of saying the way that transit authorities look at solving that problem um, needs to change. And so the way that they solve those problems is they look at, and it's like any complex problem, you divide it up into small pieces. And that's exactly what transit has done. They've divided cities up into zones. And in the case of Collingwood and every other city in the world, they use fixed... Uh, they create fixed routes, right? So they have zones, a bus goes along those stops at every stop, regardless of whether there's somebody there or not, which is tremendously wasteful. There's a lot of slack in that system. And if there's more demand, they just add more vehicles and they just keep going round and round and round. There's a microtransit group. So there's a group that's come in and said, we think we've got the solution, which are vans. And so they've taken first and last mile, essentially. Right, yes. So they've taken... those fixed zones which are pretty large because they're buses these yep. are you know large vehicles that can hold 60 or 80 people right um and they're now doing it with with vehicles that can hold 6 to 8 people and so they've made the zones even smaller so they've carved up the zones into even smaller and if they and if there's a more demand so an increase in density at any time of the day they need to add another vehicle And the only way they can do that with their algorithms, which are pooling algorithms, because you're only moving in one direction and geofencing it and picking people up along the way, is you have to make the zones even smaller. So you take one zone, you cut it into two to have two vehicles. What we've said is that the only, and that's their on-demand, the microtransit on-demand solution, the only way that you can really do this is to have a macro view. So we call it macro transit, which is to look at cities as one zone. So rather than have oh, okay. lots of zones, you yep. have one zone. And what it does, the algorithm, and it's very computationally complex algorithm, what it does is it looks at all of the, it matches. It looks and then matches all of the available resources a transit authority has at any given time during the day. And that's buses or any type of vehicle, drivers, fuel, stops, bus stops, because, you know, big buses can't be driving down any street because there's, size and liability set of, or set of liability issues, right? So you're using the existing bus stops. And then uh, we're pairing that or matching that with demand, dynamically and in real time. So one very large zone, and it means that you can, in this particular period right now, uh, where you've got two big issues happening, not just COVID, but you've got increased urbanization, and the movement to distributed workforces, mm-hmm. which was happening before COVID, by the way. This is yeah. happening well before COVID. It was, all yeah. COVID has done is exacerbate that, accelerate it, if you like, mm-hmm. to the point where you get guys like Toby Lupka coming and saying, you know, in 10 years from now, Spotify, or sorry, Shopify, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> slap, slap. Uh, <laughs> Shopify won't probably have offices at all, right? We'll be out of offices forever. Yeah. And so, so you take those things that are happening, but the urbanization thing and the COVID uh uh, uh uh the impact of COVID is that we're all leaving cities well all there's a group of people that are leaving cities so now you've got this sprawl happening which yes. means that the service areas need to even be larger right yes. and so what's happened now with the fixed routes is because the drop in ridership has been so dramatic they're cutting those routes particularly the ones on the periphery and it means that the people who need it most are losing their ability to be mobile. And when you lose your ability to be mobile, it means that you lose your ability to actually, you know, develop a, a, a meaningful life, like to have opportunity to develop a meaningful <laughs> life. It takes you away from your ability to get to and from the places that you need to go, particularly for work. And so what we've done is we've re- relooked at this and we say, we're going to service everybody in a very large zone, rural, suburban and urban, where there's a lack of density, so off-peak is a way to think about it. And peak zone, when there's peak and density, fixed routes are the best solution by far. But anything outside of that should be surrounded by on-demand. And you could see that as the day progresses and you go to off-peak times in the core of cities, density may not exist even for a large fixed route, it might actually have to shrink a little bit. Everything else is on demand around it. And so what that does is it drives huge efficiencies. It drives productivity gains, which is the economic measure. Number of riders per hour, per revenue hour, is how they actually, transit authorities, measure their economic performance, their economic viability. So that goes way up. Mm -hmm. We reduce the number of vehicles. So in Stratford, when... They, they have eight fixed routes, 280 buses. When they did a Sunday service, uh, they only used two buses. Wow. On Saturday, they used four. So the huge savings in drive, and by the way, the biggest cost of, a, of public transport are the drivers, not the vehicles themselves. But, you know, you reduce the number of drivers, the number of vehicles, the fuel, the maintenance. You reduce the impact environmentally in terms of emissions, they're very significant. But the biggest and the issue that we, we didn't expect to see And we had a study done by U of T independently, the School of Cities, uh, was the social impact. And that was the thing that surprised us the most. And so I'll give you an example, and then I'll stop. But the first deployment was in Belleville, and it was at 9 p.m. to midnight. And the ridership was around eight riders per hour, six to eight riders per hour. We increased it to over 30. It actually became the most productive bus service of all their bus services, including their commuting hour services. <laughs> and so what did that mean? It meant, meant that that route became all of a sudden economically viable. Costs were shrunk per, per rider, right? But the thing that we didn't expect was the fact that it had a huge social impact. 70% of people that were using that service were actually going to second jobs. Mm, yeah. And the other thing that matters here is that when we look at these large service areas we're optimizing around three things we're optimizing around the elimination of transfers so with those zones that mm-hmm. i was talking about earlier <clears throat> yeah you have to transfer between if you want to go from one to the other you have to transfer timely and costly right and we're also optimizing for the time you spend on a bus and the time you wait for a bus so That's we so the algorithm optimizes, optimizes on those 3 things in this big area, and by getting people in this late night service directly to where they needed to go and coming home directly to where they needed to come back to without transfers, um, more people use the service because our winters are cold. Nobody wants to be standing outside in the evening, freezing their butt off, waiting for buses as they transfer between zones. The biggest thing was, and what I found really interesting is that if your kid is working at McDonald's or in the service industry and is going, you know, transferring multiple times, there's a security issue here that we actually didn't see Mm -hmm. coming. And so what it did was it attracted people back to transit because it's transit on my time, not on the schedule, the transit schedule time. It's my time when I need it and and it gets me directly to where I want to go and I get there fast and I'm not waiting too long.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Like g- cuz there has been instances where even I've taken like I took public transit when I lived in Toronto. I actually didn't buy a car until, you know, the company I was working for at the time actually shifted out of the city and and that was always a thing. You could be stuck outside waiting with the rest of the, you know, yep. throngs of people for a bus at any given hour and yeah, you don't want to wait. It gets to be minus 30 blowing snow. That's uncomfortable. Like, sure, you know, you suck it up and you do it, but there's a lot of people that that's not a good deal for them for health or otherwise. And then it is a massive safety piece. Like, if there's somebody waiting out at night because a lot of them are in remote areas or they're not, you know, less than desirable areas they have to go to. So I think that's powerful. Even here in Collingwood, I've seen countless buses. They're around the corner from where we are right now. yeah. And they're all empty. And they're I'm like, always empty, yeah. And like when I lived in Waterloo um, and worked at Blackberry, we lived four clicks from the office, so I could either, I would run into work or bike, um, or i take public transit because it was literally outside my door and it would drop me off at the university and I could walk, you know, 20 feet to the yeah, office.
1: I've, I'm like you, I've used public transport all my life.
0: And so I, I would love to use it, yep. but it's not convenient in this country. So like in, in Collingwood here, even in when we lived in Burlington, you can't do it. It would go by my house. But it would also do a route for half an hour before it would get to where yeah. a, a, a simple location would be. So right, it, so
1: so that wouldn't happen in this case because we, with the transit authority we, authorities, we would determine mm-hmm. what's the maximum ride time that yeah. you would have on a bus, right? And so, I mean, it's Stratford's a great example because you know that city balloons to it's thirty five thousand, I think, yeah. population, balloons to one point seven million in the summer with the festival. Oh yeah, it's massive. Right. And so if you want to go east to west, so the, and the, you, you have to, you have to come and the way these systems are designed, they're star shaped. Right. So everything is, is designed to come to a hub. Oh, interesting. So you have to come to a central hub and then you have to transfer. Yeah. On the weekends, if you want to do that, to cross the city, 60 minutes, you can walk it in 30. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So we do it in 15. Directly. That's that's amazing. So, so, and you do it with less resources, um, and you're doing it with uh, with greater economic, uh, better economic outcomes. So better for the because don't forget, you know, public transport is is a public service, right? So mm-hmm. it needs to be equitable, by definition, and it needs to be convenient by definition. Yeah. Are we providing with fixed routes and and these micro transit solutions an equitable, convenient uh, solution? Absolutely not. Yeah. No. You know, so and equity and convenience is all about social impact Mm -hmm. and you need to be able to provide, you need to be able to provide people the opportunity to develop prosperous communities, to be able to lead, you know, productive, meaningful lives. And so transport is the fiber. It's the connective tissue that actually gets us to our social networks, our activities, our jobs, all those things. Without it, it's really difficult. To actually build a prosperous community, and I think there's a really great opportunity up here to take something like what Pantonium does in, as and and implement it and also totally to, and and actually to broaden the network, add more stops was really what I'm saying yeah uh, and do it in real time uh, or sorry to do it on demand in real time. Um, I think it would make a big difference i, w- I would I would I haven't owned a car. You know, I've lived in Europe and Asia all my life for thirty-five years, and I, I, I owned a car in Malaysia for, but I, I almost never used it. Yeah. I, you know,
0: the systems are set up there to. Support yeah, and 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 public transit. No,
1: London and Zurich and Geneva and all these other places. I, I use public transport. I never, and the train systems, their regional train systems in Europe in particular, are spectacular. I mean, you don't need. Oh yeah,
0: Zurich. We rode them all over the place. They're yeah, amazing. Amazing. Like, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's great. Well, I, I hope that they get in up here because I could see tremendous benefit.
1: And the thing is that when I mentioned timing, and i just get back to that, the yeah. timing is so perfect because with COVID, it's decimated an industry that is subsidized by public funds, but also is measured on its fare box performance. And you can imagine that's just shh, yes. plummeted like by 80% in some places. As we come out of this, there are going to be some really big tailwinds around stimulus spending that is going to completely allow for this industry to be reinvented right yes, to be yes. re gets back to what i was saying earlier to reimagine this industry mm-hmm. and it is such an enormous opportunity and it's the same with the environment it's the same with climate we're coming out of this global crisis with an unprecedented opportunity to deploy resources to reimagine how we live and how we work it's such a huge opportunity and the only thing you hope that will not happen is the temptation to go back to what we were doing before yes. a linear growth not a circular growth model because interest rates are low cost of capital is low in some cases you know cost of energy is low some places sorry yep you know there's there will be a temptation to drive pure linear growth, economic recovery, rather than take this amazing opportunity that's been planted in our lap and say, let's reimagine the world as a circular economy. The EU, mm-hmm. its entire recovery plan, trillions of euros, is grounded in climate resiliency.
0: And for those who are not familiar with circular donut economy, do you want to just give a 30 second, what it, what's it about?
1: So it's the notion that... That so you're decoupling uh, economic growth with uh, environmental issues, right? T- totally decoupling yep. the two. And the other thing is that you're 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 trying to maintain at every step in a process the highest economic value for inputs. Mm-hmm. At each step, you're always trying to maintain the highest economic value so that there's a buyer for it at each step, right? So there's a user for it at each step so that we're, we have to rethink the way that we design and deliver products and services to make sure that whatever, whatever materials or, um, excuse me, services that are not required after a particular step are attractive because they maintain, a certain economic value for someone else to use, right? And so it's this notion of 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 trying to eliminate waste, obviously, mm-hmm. um, but to create an economy that allows for um, ecosystems to develop where all of the inputs are being. Recycled, essentially, yeah. or reused after each process.
0: Yeah, and actually reused and recycled, not just going to a a dump oh, a, a dump a blue box that pretends to be recycled, right?
1: You should. I mean, it's a it's a term that was coined. The circular economy was coined uh, term a term that was coined by Helen MacArthur, mm-hmm. and she is this amazing British woman who's circumnavigated the world in a sailboat as a young teenager. Uh, Very cool. The first time ever done uh, by a woman uh, at that age, um, and I think she had a lot of time to think, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but she's she's coined this uh, phrase, circular economy. She should go and look online and see it. And there's right. a lot of great information.
0: Very cool. So we'll have her. You mentioned Eric Rice with the the lean startup. Reese, yeah, or Reese. Sorry, uh, Steve Blank. Steve Blank. Other books that you would recommend to the audience for for reading right now.
1: So I. So if if. So my favorite book um is a, is the story is the story of a uh company called Interface Carpets. Okay. Um it is a um is a is a South Carolina North Carolina I can not remember Carolina somewhere Carolinas. Um carpet business where its owner uh one day was asked um, by a large customer, what are you doing about, uh, sustainability and the environment? And he had actually no response. And so he went back and he looked at the, the inputs to his business. And he found out that making synthetic carpets was basically being in the oil business. Right. And he found out that he was using a non-renewable, highly polluting resource and processes to make his products. And he came back and he said, um, "I want to change this," and um, and so he created a strategy called it uh, is a seven-step step strategy uh, that he called Mount Sustainability to get to the point where they actually reinvented commerce.
0: Oh, interesting. That was the top.
1: And then when they got there, yeah, uh, he said, "We don't want to stop now." So now they're using so they're 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 products now are carbon friendly. Okay. So they're actually building products that sequester carbon. Their production sites all sequester carbon. The processes that they use- Very cool. uh, Are carbon sequestering. They recycle um, uh, fishnets from the Philippines, where they've provided a vibrant um, business model to allow for those communities to build- a business around recycling those materials so they can be used back into the, res- the production of their carpets. Smart. They looked at bio- biomimicry and they looked at the glue that you use, which is very toxic to, you know, put these carpets to the floor. Yes. And then they looked at geckos and how geckos stick to the wall. They reverse engineered that to actually make the same material synthetically. That's amazing. And that's how they uh, glue their carpets to the wall. It is, it is I, I'm going to say lessons from a radical industrialist, but I need to I need to look that up and uh while we're talking here um and tell you exactly because it's really interesting. Um so I make sure that you get um uh, um
0: get the name of it.
1: Yeah get the name of it. Uh I think it is uh I think it's a radical uh and it is a great book. Radical. it so yes it's Ray Anderson's book and it is it is called uh, business lessons from a radical industrialist. Oh cool. And that's really worth reading if you're into uh circular economy, climate, um social impact. I mean, Ray had done a great deal. Unfortunately, he worked himself to death. Um but he found that by by taking into consideration the natural world um and um and social impact that he was actually able to build a better business economically. So it, out, you know, the new business outperformed the old business dramatically. It, it, it attracted the best employees. It attracted the best and kept the best customers. Um, and, and I'll end this by saying that, um, you know, purpose matters because purpose allows for you and I to connect to a company. We understand Mm. what you stand for. We understand how you cut through the noise of all that's happening in the world to take a stand on on what you're doing as an organization and the contributions that you're making to the communities that you serve. Mm -hmm. And I think what Ray did was he created great purpose. It's very easy to understand what this company stands for, what they're trying to deliver as a set of outcomes in their communities. And if, you know, Nike's another one that's done that really, really well. But I think purpose is so, so important, particularly today. You can't have a business without a clear purpose that actually allows you and I as potential yeah. consumers to actually really understand uh, what the company stands for and what it's trying to do in, the, in this world.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a, a great way to close it because it, it it is important and to be transparent and clear around that is, is significant, right? Because it, it builds that authentic- authenticity and trust with that corporation or with that organization, which is something that people are really looking for now.
1: Yeah, trust has been one of those issues that we've kind of completely lost track of. And I think yeah. I would argue that that is a, a little bit of a, a, a consequence of the Trump administration where trust... Yeah. There was a really great uh, um, study that I think was done by Deloitte that actually showed that, you know, very little, none of us really trust anything that's coming out of the mouths of politicians and social right. media. And I think that's super important. Trust is, and it get, gets back to this issue around millennials and Generation Z and the reason why they're struggling, and a lot of them, or 60% of them, are predicted to leave their companies to join the gig economy. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is because they don't trust the companies right. they work for and they don't believe the leaders that are running them to do any kind of positive impact.
0: Which is really disappointing, right? Because that's up to the leaders to be driving home what the messages are, providing the, the ecosystem for those people, to, for those you know, kids or, or young adults to grow. And that's that's unfortunate because that shows that the leadership is not looking to evolve themselves and change.
1: We need to, the world desperately needs leadership that is all about trust, respect, personal development as an integrity, diversity, inclusiveness as absolute underpinnings to their businesses Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. without it, you won't innovate, you won't deliver outcomes that are enhanced social environmental and economic and governance outcomes as a, as a consequence of your business. So I think we really need that today. And that's part of what the activist invest or investors are actually Mm -hmm. trying to drive with their messaging. So I think there's a lot of cause for optimism uh, because I think there's a really great opportunity out there. And I think, um, you know we're turning a page with this massive global you know sort of you know uh impact that we've gone through and there's a real there's an unprecedented unprecedented time in human history to actually rethink how we we uh grow our communities our businesses uh in the next you know 100 years there's this unprecedented community unprecedented opportunity for us to rethink how and reimagine how we can actually rebuild our world.
0: And I think that's very cool. I think that's very exciting. Yeah, natural environment
1: needs to be a very big part of this because without the natural environment, there there isn't
0: us. Yeah, there's no planet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is unfortunate that people miss that. But on the optimistic side, things are changing. All right, Richard, thank you so much for joining today. That was an amazing conversation. Uh, where can people find you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Email, social media, LinkedIn?
1: I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm a kind of an old guy, so I'm not too good with social media stuff. <laughs> I have a Twitter account, but I don't know how to actually post anything. I still haven't learned how to do that. Um, so the best is to find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. All right. Know, cool. And, and uh, yeah.
0: Very good. All right. Thank you again so much for joining. Really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. All right, that's a wrap everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you tuning in and listening to the Ways of Working podcast. If you'd like more on Ways of Working or have any questions, you can go to www.thack.ca forward slash links. So that's thack.ca forward slash links, where you can access all episodes, uh, previous episodes of the podcast. You can access interesting articles and insights around ways of working. And if you want to get in touch with myself, you can also, uh, you know, for discovery sessions or, or more information around ways of working, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me there as well. All right. So thank you very much and hope you enjoy the rest of your day.